welcome back to the Limehouse Roddy Bloody Podcast. I hope you've been well. Thank you so much for choosing to join me. It's it's good to have you back. I know it's been a couple of weeks since I've put one out. I think it's mainly just simply down to the fact that life gets in the way. It's, it's, it's unavoidable sometimes. Is, 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 isn't that right? Uh, but yeah, look, this week I'm really um, quite excited about this one. Ed Begley, the, a legend... It, uh, you know, I mean, there's there's no two ways about it. I, I first came across Ed Begley when um, he, he was in Spinal Tap, the drummer there, like that brief brief scenes that he has in that film. But then uh, later, obviously, he went on to do some amazing work um, with uh, the likes of Christopher Guest. Um, <clears throat> Christopher Guest, a former uh, guest on this show. Please feel free to go back and listen to that episode. That's a cracker. Um, but yeah, no, Ed's so generous, man, like with his time. And again, I dealt with the same agent as D.D. Pfeiffer. So it was just really easy and lovely and so happy, happy to be on the podcast. The guy is well into his 70s. He's lived a life. He's got the, you know, the, the, the T-shirt, the receipt for hippie dippy shit and acting and god knows what he's he's done it all man and it's ex- it's exciting it's kind of riveting to listen to to this one and 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 you know obviously he's it, well obviously you wouldn't know this but he um obviously does a lot of work for um climate change he's an activist so we do talk about that a bit um i, I suggest that you go and what rewatch some of his um I don't know what you'd say, scene-stealing moments for uh, Best like best in Show, a great film, uh, Christopher Guest movie, where he plays a hotel uh, concierge, and it's so mind-blowingly hilarious. The timing, the craft is, is fantastic. But yes, I uh, hope you do enjoy this one. So uh, we, I, I guess that's kind of kind of it, really. I, I haven't really got anything to waffle on about because, you know, my, time is money. Mime is money, as they say in uh, Spinal Tap, Billy Crystal nod there. But the summer is here. I'm, I'm walking out in the countryside lots at the moment. It's, it's so giving and, and so wonderful and, and relentlessly beautiful, even on a, a kind of a very cloudy, muggy day like today. So it's great, isn't it? How do you feel about that? Have you, changed, have you feel, felt the change, you know, the seasons? Have you been out there experiencing it? I hope you have. I mean, even in, if you're in a bad place, it's kind of good to put yourself in front of beautiful things as and when you can. Um, but yeah, I'd like to say thank you to Ed, Kev, Simon and Alex for listening to the podcast. You guys are really sweet. You're definitely on the, the hall of fame, the Limehouse podcast hall of fame, if that is such a thing. Um, keep listening. I know it's tough. I'm not famous. So, and I'm not a celebrity, so I'm not endorsed by anyone like the Guardian or something. So thanks for listening. I I sometimes come across as a little bit of a unprofessional broadcaster, which I am. But I think that's um, part of the appeal, isn't it? We can't all be uh, BBC trained. Why would you want to be, frankly? Dear God. Uh, yeah, anyway, on that note, enjoy this conversation. It's a cracker. Do check out my website, somedaysadiamonds.co.uk, somedaysadiamonds.co.uk. 
go there. It's great. It's fun. Films, writing, songs, podcasts, you name it. Yeah, enjoy yourself. Look after yourself. Come on, England. Come on, England. That's a reference to the to the Euros football. I'm good. You know what? I've moved to the countryside recently. I, I was living in London not so long ago and my family and I moved to the countryside and I have slowly re- reconnected myself with nature and um, therefore the environment. And researching you has been a wonderful thing because of essentially what, what amazing, astounding work you've done for the environment. And I'm guessing that must have been some kind of I don't know link to your childhood it's always been there for you is that correct yes because uh, I grew up in Los Angeles and you probably heard about the smog in LA it, it rivaled your London pea soup smog and it was from some of the same sources from power plants and industry and what have you we had a yeah. big problem with smog when I was growing up the first 20 years of my life I lived in horrible choking smog then somebody came up with the idea of Earth Day, and I went to the Earth Day event. I said, well, what do you intend to do? What's the long-term plan with this? They said, we're going to clean up the air, we're going to clean up the water. And I knew we needed help on both, because I had been to Santa Monica Bay near me there, and it was very polluted. I had heard the Cuyahoga River had caught fire. We so polluted a river near Cleveland in the United States. had so much toxic pollution on it, some of it flammable. Somebody got a match too close, and the river was on fire for a while. So there was that. And then the horrible smog that I lived with firsthand for 20 years, I went, you know, sign me up. I'm on board for Earth Day. Let's see what I can do. And I got involved back in 1970 and I've been involved ever since. God, wow. Yeah. I mean, it's it's just one of those things. It's uh, especially L.A. uh, it, It just seems to get the absolute brunt of any kind of global change and and uh, i mean i was just watching i've been watching a three-part documentary uh following uh, greta thunberg for a year and uh, yeah they've started off the first episode they 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 focus a lot on the uh fires in and around los angeles and the forest fires and it's it's heartbreaking you know people 86 people or something dying in in one like hour of a forest fire and it just it just seems to me that you guys obviously there are worse situations around the world of course there are um within poverty and oh my god and how your know, environment is uh, is destroying lives but it's it's the only city in the world where at least i feel that is it's so heavily densely populated by some of the richest people on the world in the world and yet having to deal with so much climate change it's but here's an important thing sorry go ahead no 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 no. i was just saying it's quite extraordinary that it is here's an important fact that we need to remember when talking about air quality in la even though we had this horrible smog for decades it was around long before i was born 
and it was got very bad when I was a young man. Even though we have four times the cars since 1970 and millions more people, we have a fraction of the smog. It's much, much less. It's much better. All the stuff that we hoped would work did work. Cleaner power plants, cleaner cars, you know, spray paint booths, all these things, rather than letting those VOCs, those, you know, volatile organic compounds go up in the air basin and, and make more smog. Everything big and small that we did, it all yeah. worked. And guess what? We also didn't go broke doing it. You know, we in California, statewide, we had lots of energy efficient standards for light bulbs and thermostats and lots of things. And it all proved to be good for our economy, too. You can have, yeah. you know, clean air and you can have a healthy economy. In fact, they should and must go hand in hand. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. And I think green investment is so exciting to me. There's... um a magazine over here called The Big Issue, um, set up by a homeless guy and is uh, predominantly sold by uh, people without homes and who have struggled and are now getting back on top. And there's a wonderful, wonderful piece that is about, you know, Earth Day, they're focusing on it. And it's um, headed up by a guy called Chris Packham. And um, it's, uh, it's, it's really extraordinary how, you know, in 20 years' time, we will maybe 30, maybe 40 if we're really unlucky. But I reckon in 20 years time, green environment, you know, green investment will be like the biggest. Well, yeah, of course we did that. But where we are right now, it just seems like we are still completely obsessed, focused on fossil fuel to drive our economies, to drive us. We cannot possibly move away from that. It's extraordinary to me. And there's lots of choices now you can you know, buy cars that have a plug, you know, either plug-in hybrids or full electrics. Uh, and not just fancy pants stuff like that, lots of cheap stuff all makes a difference. Back in 1970, when I started, I was a broken, struggling actor. I couldn't afford a fancy electric car or, you know, fancy solar panels. I had to do what I could on a limited budget. And all that stuff yeah. that I did, certainly back in the early days, picking the low-hanging fruit first, doing the cheap and easy stuff, bike riding, public transportation, non-toxic cleaning products, you know, which were cheaper, baking soda instead of, you know, harsh cleansers, vinegar and water, home composting, home gardening, all that stuff was very, very inexpensive and saved me money. I'm pretty yeah. soon I had enough money to afford a little solar oven. Pretty soon I had enough money to afford a rain barrel to collect some rainwater. And I kept moving up the ladder till 15 years from that first birthday, I could finally afford solar. So you start small and build, you don't run up Mount Everest to do what you can <laughs> within your budget. And you, yeah. you know, finally are going to make great strides. But it's really interesting because obviously you you've been an activist for one hell of a long time. Um, what I mean, what was it that got got you into? I know the smog and, and what have you, but you must have been what in your twenties or something when that came along. And what, yes, I was twenty in nineteen seventy, and uh, you know, I was didn't have a lot of money. My dad had just passed away, and so I didn't have him to rely on to help financially. So I had to kind of make do with whatever I had <clears throat> and uh, everything that I did, which was quite modest at first, it all proved to be good economically. I even bought a 1970 mm. electric car, not a fancy car like we have today, but it was basically a golf cart with a windshield wiper and a horn. And I drove it around <laughs> LA, $950, not a bad price for a used car back then, but it didn't yeah. cost me much to run because I plug it in, it was much cheaper to pay for that amount of electricity plugged in than it was to buy that same amount of 
uh, gasoline to go the same amount of miles. Right. And there's no Did maintenance to it at all. There's no tune-up or oil change or fan belt or radiator flush or valve job. No, that normal kind of auto, you know, internal combustion maintenance. So I liked all this green stuff I was doing because it helped with another kind of green thing, which is called cash, which is money. Yeah. <laughs> but what... Did you get a name for yourself driving pretty much like a go a, a golf cart around? Even did you? Did anybody give you a, a bit of a ribbing for that? Oh, absolutely! People thought I'd lost my mind. It was a Taylor <laughs> Dunn electric car at a top speed of about twenty miles an hour, and I asked a young lady I wanted to take on a date. Her name was Cindy. Name is Cindy Williams. She's a dear friend of mine. She was on a show years ago, long before you were born, called Laverne and Shirley. But this was yes, all before yeah. that. I took her out on a date. And uh, I didn't get a second date out of her pulling up in this electric <laughs> car. The car was, I hadn't fully charged it. It was crawling up the hill. There was a kid on Hot Wheels <laughs> passing us by, I think. So it was, uh, wasn't exactly a babe magnet, this car back in 1970. Man, I mean, does, Chris, does, Chris, does Christopher Guest know about that story? I can imagine like he would maybe take a bit of inspiration and write that into one of his films. Yeah, he knows all these wacko stories of mine. Yeah. I've known him since the early 70s and so uh he's a dear friend and he's given me some great jobs that's for yeah. sure I, some of my favorite films are the ones that chris has directed oh god yeah we should get into that later for sure i'm just so interested about I, i'm really interested in in between the like the, the character uh ed formative years um and and the, the juxtaposition between having such a great awareness of your environment that you're living in and and also trying to get on the ladder of acting but I suppose most importantly, like, when did that acting bug sort of come to you? And I know, I mean, I understand your father was like an Oscar winner. Uh, so I'm, I'm guessing that there's some kind of sort of umbilical link between that and uh, wanting to do it yourself. I think it really is because it was what my father did. I think if he had been a plumber, I'd be fitting pipe now. I really wanted to do what he did. And uh, yeah. so from the earliest days, what do you want to be? I want to be an actor. And, uh, and so I pursued it, but of course I hadn't a clue what I was doing. I hadn't taken any training. I just thought that looks easy. I can do that. And I never got yeah. any jobs. I auditioned a few times cause I was Ed Begley's son. So somehow I'd talk <laughs> people into seeing me and I never got any work. And then finally, fortunately somebody, I think my dad suggested, why don't you try some classes first and see if you can learn something. I did that and then I started to work and worked quite modestly for the first few years while my dad was still alive after I started out. But by yeah. 1970, sadly, he passed away. And also some, by a coincidence, weird coincidence, that's when I started to work. I started to work as a, you know, regular working actor, small parts admittedly, yeah. but I, I did quite well and worked for about 15 years as a kind of itinerant actor until I got this show in 1982 called St. Elsewhere. And from that point yeah. to this, it's been kind of, you know, smooth you're sailing because you're on a show like that. You're, <laughs> you're probably going to get some work thereafter. You're a pig, right? <laughs> yeah, it was 1982. I was 32 years old. And Jesus. Uh, it was a great job. Bruce Paltrow gave me that job. And I did it for six years and worked with great people. Denzel Washington and David Morris and Bonnie Bartlett and Christina Pickles yeah. and Ed Flanders, Bill Daniels. It was just a great time with great writers yeah. and great directors. And I really enjoyed it in the 80s. So where did you grow up? Like, uh, have you always been uh, West Coast? 
I was born in Hollywood, California, but my dad was a stage actor as well. So occasionally we would go back east, not, not occasionally actually, for the school part of the year, summer vacation we'd spend in California where I was born. But yeah. the school year, we'd go back to New York and went, I went to school there. And because uh, he would do a lot of plays, as I said. And uh, so I had a wonderful kind of exposure to the East Coast mentality, which is a good thing to know. But also had the very casual upbringing and very laid back California lifestyle of a young man growing up in the San Fernando Valley. So I kind of yeah. had the best of both worlds. So what what was your uh, I mean your your dad is like going from A to B C D whatever all these kind of like different jobs um, from a very young age when were you first aware that maybe your dad wasn't exactly uh, you know an average Joe so to speak like a plumber electrician gardener etc. I thought it was all very normal because uh, you know I, I I just thought that's what people's dads did I knew other dads didn't work in the entertainment industry but I didn't really think it through but also <laughs> i guess we had he had a lot of normal friends he didn't hang out with a lot of movie star friends there was a few working actors that he knew and spent time with yeah. but most of the people who weren't at all in the business were his closest friends and so uh it wasn't until he did a movie called unsinkable molly brown he started driving over to beverly hills regularly and hanging out with debbie reynolds so suddenly i'm hanging out with debbie reynolds and carrie fisher and all these people and it was very oh, exciting man. for me to be hanging out with movie stars because I grew up fairly normal childhood in the San Fernando Valley and out on Long Island. So there weren't a lot of movie stars in our life back then. <laughs> right. Yeah. God, like, so that's, that's quite interesting because I, I, as I said, I spoke with Dee Dee Pfeiffer and she, um, she's probably, she's got a lot of, you, you know, she's, grew up and kind of like introduced to that whole environment at such a, a young age. Who, I'm sorry, I, I didn't you hear who you're talking about? Dee Dee Pfeiffer, uh, uh, who's uh, ma managed by Turk, your, um, your agent. Oh, yes, yes, and, of um, course, yes. Yeah, and she, she, yeah, she's a wonderful man. She's so great to talk to. And um, it just, it's just funny. I love the idea of, because actors are worshipped right they really are worshipped to the nth degree and it's it's interesting to me how some people are thrust into it and others get kind of like a look behind the curtain at a very young age do you think that's kind of what you got with your with your dad you kind of saw through the bullshit a bit you know yes i did i mm. got a peek behind the curtain i would go with him on occasion not often it was very exciting when he'd ask me to go with him onto a set or an audio recording session, or occasionally even I'd go with him when he'd be opening a play in Boston or New Haven or in Washington, D.C. And I'd go with him to be backstage at the theater and see how that worked with the, you know, the cyclorama and the different, you know, scenes going up and down on ropes and weights and what have you. And just loved all the mechanics of the stage work and the glory of it and the magic of it. Yeah. And went to a few yeah. plays as a young man. He also very fortunately took me to plays other than the ones he was in. And I got to see the miracle worker on Broadway and uh, beyond the fringe, you know, with Peter okay. Cook and Dudley Moore. I saw that on God. Broadway. Oh my I God. Saw the odd couple. Okay. I saw these oh, I incredible the plays that were so moving to me. Mm. And I got hooked. You know, you get hooked if you, 
witness that at a young age and want to be part of it in some way as an actor, a director, a costume person, a makeup person. You just want to be part of that troupe. And I yeah. was fortunate enough to do just that. So your, your dad, was, was he one of the actors that sort of said, there's no way you are getting into this, that it's a crazy business, there's no security, or was he very much hands off? Was he cool, like let you just crack on with, with your love for it and sort of pursue it? He was a version of choice A. That is to say, I, I have a much had a much older brother who's passed away years ago now, but Tom Begley, my my father's much older son, Tom, yeah. turned out to be his nephew. That's a long, complicated story I won't bother, bother you with, but he was in fact my cousin, but raised as my much older brother. But he was in vaudeville with my dad, and he at some point resented it that he told my dad, you took my childhood away. I don't want to be doing that. Well, why didn't you tell me? I was scared to tell you or whatever. And so he went, I'm never going to do that again. He had two kids later in life, my sister and I, Aileen, and we both wanted to be in the business. So if you want it, you can go work for it. I'm not going to hand it to you. I'm not going to stop you from doing it. But if you want it, good luck. It's hard to get into, but I'm not going to do okay. what I did with Tom and, you know, browbeat you into being an actor is the way he portrays it, which was the way my dad felt it went down. Right. So okay. uh, he was hands off pretty much. But again, hands off. How did I get an agent? I was Ed Begley's son. Suddenly I have an agent. That's very hard to get as a young man. Suddenly I'm going very. up on interviews. How did that happen? It happened because I was Ed Begley Jr. Wouldn't have happened if I was Ed, you know, Costanza or something, whatever. Somebody else that wasn't yeah. the son of somebody. And so I had an advantage being a son. I didn't really appreciate that for years. I just thought, no, I made it on my own. He didn't help me. But just yeah. by nature of his name, he, of course, did. People were, A, inclined to remember your name, and B, inclined to be friendly towards you because they had worked with your dad. And when I worked with him on a, you know, Philco Playhouse, and I did a craft theater show with him, or we did a play on Broadway, top of page eight, Eddie, go ahead and read. Good luck, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and they were kind of in my corner right away, these people, because they knew and liked my dad. So it was a big yeah. plus. I didn't see it that way at all for years, but I was incorrect for many years until I thought it through. God, man. It's, it's, it's just something, isn't it? Like, because having, having that door open to you at, um, at some, such a young age, is, it's, quite, it's, it's quite unique. I think... I would, I don't know, what's it like going into an to a audition knowing that those people know your your dad's like a kind of like a, not a big shot, but you know, he's he's Oscar nominated, he's, he's won an Oscar and stuff like that. Um, is it more pressure? Is it less less pressure? I mean, I know those are two extremes of the, 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 the pole, as it were, but um, yeah. As a you, young man, you I it? focused on the pressure of it and the I'm not him, don't think I'm I'm him, you know, kind of a thing. I, I kind of rebelled as young men and women do. I just saw all the negatives of being his son and kind of didn't want people to judge me uh, as, as they, you know, as his son in some way. But I then focused in later years on all the pluses that it, it came with it of being his son. But uh, I didn't get that at all and certainly didn't get how easy it was compared to other people, even though I have lots of friends that were quite talented at college that didn't get a job on 
you know, my three sons as I did in 1967. They didn't get jobs on these other shows. You know, I got yeah. these jobs because I was a son, but the nepotism was not restricted to acting. Sons of cameramen became cameramen, sons of sound engineers became sound engineers, you know, and, and daughters of finally began to get those safe opportunities, uh, you know, but it was very, there was a great deal of nepotism in Hollywood at that point, great deal, and it was not, you know, frowned on much at all. Yeah. But ultimately, let me be clear about one thing, if you can't deliver, you're not going to get that second job. You won't even make it all the way through the first. They'll fire you. You can be anybody's son or daughter or cousin, and that's all well and good <clears throat> to me. But if you don't, A, know your lines, B, show up on time, <clears throat> pardon me, and C, do the job well, Yeah, you won't get a second job. So it only helps up to a point to get your foot in the door, open the door, but you've got to not only walk through, but you've got to maintain your place inside. You gotta ha you gotta bring it. You've gotta have something within you that is just driving it, and it's often just called talent. And uh, yeah, you've definitely you definitely uh, got that. I mean, I can remember when I first saw saw you as a four eyed geek on the drums in Spinal Tap, <laughs> and uh, that, that was fun. That, that movie. Uh, oh my god, unbelievable! But. I don't know why I referenced that because I'm going to start talking about it. But I don't want to. I just want to touch a little, just a tiny bit more, if if I may, on um, on your your father's scene in um, in Angry um, Twelve Angry Men, and uh, yeah, am I right? Is he the the basically the guy who's the character rather who's the bigoted uh, racist guy, and he sets everyone against him. Um, and it, it, but but it's such a compelling. There's about a two and a half, three minute scene he does. They all stand up and they all turn his back on him and, and walk away. It's such a compelling scene. Have you watched that many times? Is is that something you associate with at all? I've seen it more than once. I love that movie. Sidney Lumet did a wonderful job. Every actor in it is exemplary. You know, yeah. an incredible, incredible cast. My dad among them. And there's several racists in that jury on that jury in yeah. that play but my dad is probably yeah. the worst among them and uh come on you know what those people are like why is everybody looking at me like that you know he really doesn't even get right. it at all uh and he played that so wonderfully he was a wonderful wonderful actor that could connect mm -hmm. with things that were very deep and meaningful and make it believable he was very very good and he certainly had a lot of company in that high quality position in that that movie you know from henry fonda on to you know every one of them lee cobb and e.g marshall and robert weber and uh john fiedler and uh, god i can't remember half of them but man you know, you've done a pretty jack good Plugman. listing yeah jack Plugman. yeah the, that's it's an incredible movie that even it, it's it more than it it does it does more than stand up today it's it, it's 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 a cornerstone to such a degree it's heartbreaking that we, I feel like there's hasn't, there has been progress. Of course there has been progress, but then you look at what's happened with George Floyd and, and on and on. Right. Uh, it's, it's hard not to watch that film today and think, uh, where is the progress? Yeah. I mean, how far have you know, we really come? I know we've made some right. strides, there's not separate drinking fountains and bathrooms anymore, but there's still lots of problems and we need to address yeah. them. And that film does point it out very well. Yeah, it's it's just it's amazing um, when your dad's character just he he comes to the end of that scene 
and and he just walks away in like this disbelief it's almost like a heartbreaking moment for this guy who's kind of having to realize that look this your your views are toxic and right it's not welcome and it's he's trying to struggle in the modern world and that's in like what the 1960s i mean 1950s believe it or not that was the 1950s okay god and there's plenty of racism around in a court room in a jury room back then for him to be so egregious that they would all turn their backs on him it you know was uh he had to be pretty far gone and he he was his character was very Mm. well written and very well acted and directed yeah so in terms of like um i don't know what you'd call it but growing growing up and you've we've we've established uh, you know the foundation of your dad and that's it's so exciting that i love it it's um it's it's very um i don't know heartwarming i know that you said that it was a very much from your dad anyway it was very much like look you could do this but do it your own way i'm not going to help you when was like your first break i know you said sort of you got into it about 7 years and 7 years and you got um you got a little bit of a break but when did you feel like hey i'm doing this i'm standing on my own two feet this is working. I guess when I started to do this show called Room 222, it was a classroom mm. drama with a bit of comedy interspersed that starred Lloyd Haynes and Michael Constantine and Denise Williams. Denise? Oh, God, my brain is so far gone. And all these wonderful young people who were students like Richard Dreyfus and Cindy Williams and Bruno Kirby oh, and wow. me and the regulars... Yeah. Uh, David Jolliffe and Heshimu and uh, these wonderful, Karen Valentine was the teacher, all these wonderful actors and actresses from that era were in that. And I started to work on that fairly regularly. I was not at all a regular, but I, I did about seven episodes. And I went, wow, I'm really an actor now. And I started to get to that, <laughs> you know, 10,000 hours thing of what have you, of all the work I was doing in college, doing some, you know, college stage work and what have you, and doing student films and friends plays and, other things and working professionally, making money doing it on Room 222. And at some point I got to that 10,000 hours mark and I started to get better at it, but still hadn't a clue what I was doing really. It was finally with St. Elsewhere a little bit before and then finally a bit more thereafter, I started to get my footing and go, what are these doctors really like? You know, are they, they weren't really like the doctors I'd seen before on television, like Dr. Kildare or Ben Casey those TV doctors yeah. that cared so much and sit with the patient. And, the, and I'm not saying doctors don't care and, and don't get very serious when talking to patients, but, but basically when the patient is out and they're on the operating table, it's like they're a real good mechanic who works on carburetors. That's what a heart right. surgeon is. They're really good at it, but it's basically a carburetor. You've got to get this valve doing that and that, you know, Venturi valve doing something else. And you've got to have that cleaned out and this fixed. And, and that's what it is that, you know, they're very serious about their work in many ways, but also they're trying to fix something. They're, they're mechanics in a way, too. So uh, I had the, the good fortune before I did that show, St. Elsewhere, to spend time, go on a fishing trip with some doctors and spend time with them when they weren't being doctors. They're just being ordinary people. And I went, wow, this is the way. I should play this character. He's more like this rather than a serious doctor knocking at your front door. You didn't make your appointment today, Mrs. Honeycutt. What's wrong? Is everything? I don't remember a doctor ever knocking on our door saying, you didn't make your appointment. I'm worried. Are you okay? 
you know, medicine yeah. wasn't yeah. like that even for me as a young man. So yeah. St. Elsewhere was a fairly real show in the way it was written, directed and acted. And so that helped. And I, I started to bring some reality into my work and it, and it, it helped. It helped me a great deal. Hmm. TV is such a, I mean, it's evolved to such a degree now. What would you, have, what would you have done now for like a, I mean, a, 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 a Netflix series? Um, I mean, in terms of you, you look at them, I mean, the, the crown of just one example off the top oh, of the my crown head. Oh, the crown is so brilliant. Mad, the- mad men and what have you. Like it, it's exploded, hasn't it? And, and it's, it's been reinvented, I suppose. Like have you sort of, um, have you celebrated that, that sort of, uh, I don't know, return to television as it were? Absolutely. If the golden age of television was back when my dad was working in live TV with Patty Chavsky and all of that and Rod Serling and those people writing, you know, patterns and uh, all these wonderful, you know, uh, I think the uh, 12 Angry Men was originally a stage player at TV yeah, production. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so if that was the golden age of television, and I would suggest that it was, this is now the platinum age of television with Breaking Bad and with all these incredible Handmaid's Tale yeah. and The Crown and uh, Broadchurch and, you know, yeah. Happy Valley, you know, those incredible... Yeah, the, there's a couple of random British ones in there. I love that. Ed. Well, they are. Like, is there anything uh, yeah. more brilliant than, you know, Sally Wainwright? I mean, she's just amazing right. talent. Yeah, she is, yeah, you know, we've wonderful. got, you know, Vince Gilligan, and you've got Sally Wainwright, in my opinion. I mean, we, <laughs> those are people of a yeah. high, high standing. Like when I was a young man, it was Rod Serling and people like that. Yeah. And these are talents, writers of that ilk who are working today, doing incredible yeah. work that's just uh, breathtaking to watch. So I've had to up my game over the years and have, you know, I've had different acting teachers and people that have made me get better and better but you look at the quality of the work i just worked with christian bale this amazing mm-hmm. actor christian bale that i know you're well aware of and uh, yeah i know joaquin phoenix and i've worked with him a bit i just the the quality of the work that's being done and margot robbie and it, it's just yeah. extraordinary uh well joaquin phoenix want, you must what's you that must, you must Joaquin Phoenix, you must have quite a connection with that guy because of his environmental, uh, his environmental work. He's a dedicated environmentalist. He's a wonderful young man and I'm friendly with him and I'm just in awe of the work that he does, just in awe. Mm. And, uh, you know, it's just uh, uh, amazing what people are doing. And uh, I I just, I marvel at it every day. Olivia Coleman, look what she's doing. Just extraordinary. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's important. I think the uh, I, I think what's happening. Hopefully now, Trump has been disposed of, semi disposed of. I'm sure you know the cancer and the tumor that he has. What I suppose he's the symptom of. Right um, now that it, it's taken, you know, hopefully that'll. I don't know. It will stop sapping the energy away from issues such as in the environment, and now at the Oscars actors when they take an award won't you know go so much for trump they'll go more for the leonardo dicaprio our planet's dying kind of thing now that trump's by the wayside a little bit yeah certainly with this new administration in place they fully believe in climate change they don't think it's a hoax they know something needs to be done they know that Mm. we gain other benefits by attacking 
climate change and finding solutions to that. We're going to clean up the air quality in Houston, Bakersfield, and L.A. at the same time. We're going to lessen our dependence on foreign oil. We're going to save money over time because the cheapest forms of power nowadays are wind and solar. So there's many ways you're going to do good things for the environment and also save dough. So they get it. Green jobs are the number one priority for the Biden administration, and he's wise to do that, I think. And that's yeah. that's the future. That's where we need to be headed and where we are headed. So I think uh, there's a great many reasons to be hopeful these days. Yeah, no, I think so. I think there's optimism. Like, I mean, where you find it depends. Depends what day, you know, depends when how you wake up, doesn't it? Depends. Some days you wake up and you think the world's never, it's, it's, oh my God, the world's going to end. And some days you'll wake up, and, oh, yeah, there's a way out of this. It's fine. I'll just, I'll just listen to David Attenborough. It'll be fine. Right. Yes. I'm in that yeah. hopeful phase right now. And many of us are because of yeah. the changes that have occurred recently. So uh, I'm not saying there isn't going to be a great deal of loss of many species. That's kind of in the pipeline already. No matter what we do, there will be some tremendous losses. But there's still much that can and will be saved if we stay on this path now. We won't lose mm. nearly everything, you know, with sea level rise, everything that comes with climate change, the wildfires and the storms. We've always had storms, of course, and hurricanes and tornadoes, but there's more of them now and they're more severe. <clears throat> so we need to do something. You know that things are real when the Pentagon and the insurance companies are saying climate change is real and we're worried about it. You know, insurance wow. companies just care about their bottom line. They're paying big money. They're writing a lot of checks for a lot of this, <coughs> pardon me, storm-related damage. And the Pentagon knows very well about climate change because they know they have a lot of naval bases and things that something called sea level. If sea level is rising, <laughs> it's going to be very difficult for them to keep things straight in some of their ports and what have you. So. Uh, you know, we've we got some to, challenges and all the experts at NASA and NOAA and the military, the uh, insurance companies, they, they know what's going on. And well, it's just in, it's, it's asset protecting, isn't it? It's funny when you get into the, the, right. that stage, that, that cycle of things, you go, oh, okay, well, there's a, re you know, finally, you know, there, uh, the, the U.S. is stepping up their uh, environmental, um, I don't know what you'd call it, action because, oh, they're losing an airfield or et cetera, et cetera, or it's um that's me being a you know being a bit cynical but i mean it's it does feel to me like it's it's happening at least i think the i think it is for years you know the front door has been closed to have a conversation with people about climate change they just don't believe in it so i've always yeah. gone okay they're not opening the front door i go around the side door and say want to save some money you know you want to lessen yeah. our dependence on foreign oil want to clean up the air in your town of houston you know i kind of approach my conservative friends and families, you know, in that way. And I can usually get a conversation going if I just don't focus on something they've decided not to believe in. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. We've, I'm aware we've gone off on a tangent, so I'm sorry for that. It does happen occasionally on this podcast, I have to say. Good. Um, but yeah, it's a good tangent. I hope we can stumble across it a little bit later. But um, the, the, yeah, obviously we, we, we touched on Chris Guest earlier and what have you. Um, I was talking with my wife earlier about a scene that always tickles me to pieces. Um, I, I think it's the scene in um, Best in Show where you have to show Eugene Levin, Eugene Levy even, and Catherine O'Hara their um, substitute hotel room. And it's a, uh, a janitor's closet, basically. And uh, right. 
<laughs> that yeah, is... the credit card doesn't work. Jerry and Cookie yeah. Fleck come to the hotel desk, and the credit card doesn't work. So I, we go back and forth about that for a while, and then <laughs> yes. I finally go, you know what? I have something for you, and I take them into this basically supply closet and try to <laughs> the nicest picture of what that will be for them. Well, it's very close <laughs> to the restroom, the lobby restroom. Plenty of paper towels there for you to help yourself freshen up. And room service, well, just try to grab somebody. If you see them, you know, rolling a cart by, you can get some room service in that way. But don't mess with any of these uh, cleaning supplies, these spot removers and what have you. This, some of it's pretty toxic. I think it's like you and Fred Willard, let God rest his soul. You are like the absolute scene stealers in any of Chris Guest's work. Do you, well, I mean, I know you're not probably going to agree with me on that one, but that's the way I feel, you know. And um, maybe you'll agree with the uh, with the uh, Fred Willard thing, but um, I agree with man. the Fred Willard part. Uh, to mention me in the same sentence as Fred Willard, I take as a great, great compliment. He was a dear friend, and I was a fan of his since the early, early seventies, when he was in a group called the Ace Trucking Company, an improv group that went around the United States and. I think yes. they traveled abroad a bit too, but they were yes. very, very funny, great improv group. And he was great in that. Then he was on Fernwood tonight in, in the United States. And he was in a bunch of wonderful movies and in the Chris, in the Chris guest movies, it got to really shine and we got to yeah. see what he could do, which was nothing yeah. short of extraordinary. So I was always grateful to be in a movie with Fred Willard. He was unbelievably great. Yeah. And was uh, it, uh, in terms of improvisation, I'm wondering how much, because I know it's, you know, it's kind of like written in folklore that everything is um, improvised, you know, within certain aspects of guest movies. But what um, can you remember like moments of, of just pure like roll around on the floor laughing or trying to keep yourself together? Uh, moments when when the camera's rolling or just you know when he said cut and you all fall absolutely i remember it vividly it was the, when i did best in show the first of the well the first chris guest movie i did if you will was really a rob reiner movie with spinal tap you know mm, and chris yeah. was in it as a huge force behind it of course and harry shear was and michael mckean was and of course rob directed it brilliantly <clears throat> and they all wrote it together <clears throat> all of them but the first and then he did Waiting for Guffman, which was a masterpiece and my favorite of oh, all those movies, even though really I'm not in my number one favorite. But then I got really to be in Best in Show, and now I'm across the desk from Eugene Levy, my hero, and Catherine O'Hara, my other hero from SCTV. And they're going on about all this stuff, their credit card and the trip down there. My only role is trying to be a Marine and just trying to be, you know, a stone statue or something just to... Mm -hmm. And not, yeah. you know, all over the desk. Yeah. And then who comes up next? But Michael McKean and Michael Higgins as a couple, you know, who are trying to check into the hotel. <laughs> and uh, what they came up with on the spot clearly was just unbelievable. And I had the hardest time not laughing my butt off. Uh, it was it took a great deal to not corpse in that situation. It was very, very hard. Yeah. They were, they're all so damn funny. God, yeah. I mean, like, I even mascots is, um, you know, because you think, oh, when when will it be that he they they bring a cast together? It just doesn't quite work. When's that gonna happen? It hasn't happened yet. Mascots is pure brilliance. It's adorable film as well. It's a really adorable movie. I love it. Um, and the chemistry goes on and on 
Uh, just, what do you think it is about the? Give me one second. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. The lady is trying right. to walk the dog, and nobody seems okay. to know about it. Let me just. Irma. Okay. Can you help me with the dog? The woman's here, and I'm on a podcast. I'm so sorry, Irma. We'll be right out, Dory Beth. We're going to put the harness on. The dog walkers here. I'm very sorry. You can dude, exclude or great. include this at your whim. It's real. It's happening. Thank you. Well, exactly. The nature of the nature of podcasting means that people will probably be lapping this up. It's real. Do you, do you listen to that podcast where Ed Ed Begley was like totally like walking his dog and like a dog walker came? Oh my god, <laughs> it was amazing. Um, my daughter hey, got look, a dog I mean, a while ago, so yeah, we're making sure it gets walked. Okay, One wonders where I she mean, is. I, oh, yeah. well. Get her to walk it, maybe. <laughs> oh dear. So what's um, what do you think? Like the the I don't know. What what do you think the mastery, the the uh, chemistry is behind some of those movies? Like for example, when you first watched This Is Spinal Tap, what do you think for you? What made it work? I mean, what made it work for down. me is that Chris Guest on Spinal Tap, all of them, Rob and Harry and Michael and every single person in it. They laid down this carpet of reality, if you will, first, where it's just real, like a real documentary, very serious, what have you. And then the stuff spikes out from this carpet of reality, you know, yeah. turn it up to not 10, but 11, you know, and songs like Big Bottom and all this crate and the Stonehenge, you know, display coming down and all that incredible stuff. If yeah. you have this carpet of reality laid down, then you can, you hook people into thinking, oh, I'm, some people thought it was a real band. You're watching a real documentary about a real band and they're talking about this metal band and you're drawn in and then you see that it's all completely mad as you can imagine. And that's the key to it. You know, there's a wonderful teacher that I had, an acting teacher that I had called Roy London. He's since passed away, but he said to me years ago, I was working with him on a show and at some point one day he said, you know, you know what's the most interesting thing to watch, Ed? I said, what? He said, how a character deals with pain. It really is how they a person handles pain and comedy or drama is what really compels you. And I nodded and I listened to him, but I went, I was thinking, what a bunch of baloney. Pain, I don't want to see, oh, I'm in pain, a guy on stage in a movie, oh, I'm in so much pain. This guy, I thought he was a good acting teacher, but I'll just work out the rest of the hour with him and then I'll go home. But then I was driving home after and went, wait a minute. No, that's not what he said. He didn't say, I didn't, I don't want to, you know, it should be a person writhing in pain, how a character deals with pain, like trying yeah. to keep the lid on the pot, you know, and that steam is bubbling it up like crazy. That's what's interesting to watch, to see Meryl Streep and Sophie's choice, what it's all about, what her choice was and how she deals with it, making that James choice Dean. as a mother. That yeah. is compelling to watch. That's extraordinary yeah. work. And then you have... You have that. Sorry, somebody was calling on the other line. Forgive me at that moment. <laughs> That's all right. Don't worry. You, you have that. Then in comedy, you have Laurel and Hardy, let's say, carrying a piano down the stairs and oh. the piano falls as they're carrying it down yeah. the stairs. Could you imagine how painful that would be? <laughs> and it, it not only falls, they drop it, but it falls on them. You know, and yeah. you're like laughing your ass off. How a character yeah. deals with pain, comedy or drama. And it's key to the thing. And it very much informed my work. Again, not to make it my, every character's, oh, God, you're suffering. And, but how a character deals with pain. A character deals with pain by 
showing pain, by making a joke, mm -hmm. by taking a drive, by racing out the front door, whatever the different choices may be. But to watch how a person deals with pain is universal in Greek dramas and, you know, plays over the centuries and Shakespeare, Hamlet's pain and Ophelia's pain and all that goes with it. You know, Richard's pain and yeah. Richard, all of it. It, it, it's, it was a very wise note from Roy London, and I use it to this day. How does this character deal with this pain? Doesn't have to be physical yeah. pain, emotional pain, whatever it is. How do they deal with it and let an audience get a hint of that? Watching it between the brush and the reeds, what are they? What am I yeah. really seeing here? He's trying to hide it from me, but it's there. What is it? And that's the brilliance of Joaquin Phoenix's work and Meryl Streep's work and all the great actors among us, Christian Bale. They, yeah. you, you wonder, oh my God, look what I'm watching, what I get with Robert De Niro to be privy to, you know, in Raging Bull. Look at what's, what this character, Jake LaMotta, is going through. It's just, it's extraordinary to watch. And we have great actors who really know how to do it. Yeah, and in terms of when, because this is a thing, I, have, we haven't, I haven't been to the cinema in a very long time. I think the last time I... I, I got to see a Chris, a Chris Nolan movie. Uh, I oh, didn't boy. understand in any, you know, I didn't understand it in any way, shape, or form. But that that was like I don't know how long ago that was now. But um, I miss going into the cinema and feeling the chemistry when everyone's getting it right. And I think personally, this is a big one. Uh, <laughs> movies that are really funny and everyone starts getting it, and one guy laughs. And then everyone else starts laughing. One person starts laughing. Someone gets a joke. I was. I remember watching Austin Powers in the film, in the, in the films, in the cinema for the first time. Small cinema in my hometown of Guildford, and I started laughing. Right, and everyone around me suddenly thought, "Okay, okay, I get it. It's, it's cool to laugh now. It's fine. This film." And if you're in that environment, and everyone suddenly realizes this is a moment of pure comedic genius, there is right. nothing like it. You know, and that comes from the actor. Myers is a sheer genius, and that's it's just extraordinary. That's some of the funniest stuff I've ever seen. That's you've got, you've brilliant. gone a bit, you've gone a bit muffled there. Sorry, Ed. Sorry about that. Maybe I had my hand. There we go. I think yeah. I'm blocking the microphone, but Mike Myers is an acquaintance of mine. I love him so much. He's so wonderful. I just work with him, and he is a master comedian, master actor, and uh, yeah. That's a very, very funny movie for all the reasons we cite. Do you, I mean, do you miss, do you miss the theater? Do you miss the, do you miss um, the cinema where you're, you know, I, I've got a vision, a vision of you seeing a premiere of, of, I don't know, whatever guest movie you're in and, and having the audience react and being nervous, you know, because you don't know how they're going to react to either your stuff or the film in general. Do you, right. do you miss that chemistry of, of just random people getting your movie? Yeah, I've missed it. The, this whole pandemic, it's been uh, a challenge to have to be separated for, for this period of time. But I just started going back. I've been fully vaccinated. So I went and saw my friend Bob Odenkirk's movie. I saw, um, you know, Nobody which is very uh, funny and it's an action movie and it's many action things. movie. Right. Yeah. Yeah. He's very good in it. So it was great to see a movie with an audience again. I look forward to seeing stage plays again in that way and everything as things begin to open up and I believe they will. I think we're headed mm. in the right direction now. So, uh, you know, yeah, it's something everybody's missed and, uh, I, I hope we can get back to it. Something like we experienced mm. before. I, I sure hope so. 
but I mean, can you remember like back in the day, perhaps maybe Spinal Tap or whatever, like having that thrill of being, you know, like <clears throat> an- anxious of of what people are going to think of your film and 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 feeling the electricity when people start to get it. Yeah, I had that experience in Spinal Tap when I was playing the drums, and somehow somehow that character, the way I played the drums, got a laugh. I wouldn't I wasn't sure I'd get a laugh there. I, in fact, I didn't think I would at all. And somehow that yeah. was a laugh that moment when I'm kind of doing some little yeah. lame drum riff and what have you, and people yeah. laughed, and I was very very pleased. And the same with Best in Show or a Mighty Wind when I start spouting Yiddish. I mean. What does that even mean? He's a Swedish American <laughs> guy. Why is he talking Yiddish? Didn't make any sense, but I did it anyway. And Chris somehow allowed me to do it. And so, you know, that got a laugh. And I was very, very pleased with that. And in stage plays, I'm yeah. friends with David Mamet. I've done a few Mamet plays, some Ooh. of them comedies. And so uh, to be on stage doing his stuff in a play called Romance and to get these huge tsunami laughs, this wave of laughter that's so big, bigger than anything I had as a stand-up guy, and to be honest, bigger than anything I've ever had in the movie theater, huge laugh. Yeah. I mean, it's it's such a reward as an actor to get that that affirmation of the writer's work that he wrote it well, and that the director and actor's work that you performed it well. It's a it's a great moment when you get that laugh or that that reaction of any sort. God, it's a drug, isn't it? It really is. But I I wonder what it's like working with David Bama because he's probably one of my all-time favorite writers. I think. He's amazing. He's, uh, as I learned the first week I worked with him, the first day I worked with him, he's a very funny man. You know, I thought he was going to be yeah. very, very serious because it was a very serious play I did. The first play I did with him was called The Cryptogram with Felicity Huffman. Mm. And I, you know, thought, wow, I, I, I better not crack any jokes. What have. He always has like three or four great jokes every day that he brings in. Three or four great jokes every single day and he's just a a very funny person then i got to be in some of his comedy you know works as well and uh very pleased to be in that very funny man and brilliant brilliant fellow so i'm proud to know him i'd I'd just that there are so many and they're i don't know there's so many movies i want to know why why I love this, why I love 70s movies quite so much. I think like they were given like this license to do whatever the hell they wanted. I don't know whether that's true or not. There's these films, like I, watched, I was watching Harold and Maud not so long ago. One of the, the, it's just such an extraordinary film or being there with Peter Sellers. Extraordinary movies that you just wouldn't have made these days. Like if they were, they'd be super indie and no one would really watch them. But Harold and Maud, I mean, that is just an absolute classic can you like talk at all about 70s like comedy seven and 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 the the structure of films and how they were how they were so eccentric uh and yet so compelling my daughter hayden just walked in hi hayden i'm doing a podcast hello that's okay (laughs) i like your dog hello (laughs) oh thank you isn't she adorable well, technically, I haven't seen her. I heard a little bark, but that's about it. But you know. Dory Beth came and took her, yes. Oh, okay, good, good, good. All right, I'll leave you to it. I love it. Thanks, you. honey. I'm back with you. Sorry, <laughs> lad. <laughs> that's all right, mate. That's all right. Um, no, we were just talking about 70s movies. Um, and it's interesting because we're, you know, with Mammoth and stuff like that. And 
I can imagine that you've that you know you you were wide awake for that uh, that explosion of the nineteen seventies either stage uh, uh, and uh, troops that went around out, out of Chicago, Steppenwolf and what have you, and then you've got like this just and then that bleeds and informs the film industry in such a profound way, and I I just sometimes wish I was there for the first first screening of Dog Day Afternoon, just for one example, you know. It was extraordinary to be around it. I was kind of on the periphery for a while and got to be in a few movies by some people who were great leaders in that 70s uh, independent film explosion. I got to work with Bob Rapelson in a movie called Stay Hungry. And I worked with Jack Nicholson in a movie called Going South. Got to be friendly with Bob Rapelson and Jack Nicholson both. And uh, got to work with great people, Jeff Bridges on this movie and Warren Oates on that movie. Monty Hellman, yeah, there's yeah. another 60s, 70s director. Monty Hellman had just passed away, did some wonderful movies. I was in a movie uh, with Harry Dean Stanton that Monty directed called uh, yeah. Cockfighter. So uh, also I worked for, uh, I worked uh, on Blue Collar, a Paul Schrader movie called Blue Collar, another Paul Schrader movie called Hardcore. Then in the 80s, so- I worked on Cat People. And, How uh, do you think they diff- differed then, the, like the directors in the seventies compared to sort of now, and and those kind of the um, auteurs, you know, they're just literally just given license to just go off and like Friedkin or what have you, just go off and make movies, and just and the the costs would just go through the roof. Like you just don't get that though these days, obviously for very good reasons. But that cult, that sense of cult around it, what do you? Can you speak at all about the, the sort of vibe of the 70s in, in, in Hollywood and how that was allowed to sort of happen? Well, the art world was changing. You know, painting was changing with people doing different kinds of modern art. It was splatter painting and what have you, and things were changing. Movies were changing. American movies were influenced by French movies where they used smaller equipment, less light. Right more reality-based stuff, cinema verite and what have you, became Mm. chic. And uh, then a lot of our, you know, Cassavetes and others started to work with the smaller equipment and other directors followed. But even then, the more, what turned out to be more mainstream movies than the smaller French movies and smaller American independents, people like Bob Rapelson and people like that. And Jack Jack Nicholson started to do these larger movies like Mila Schwarman movies, like One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest, and and, right. uh, and Chinatown, yeah. you know, level movies that were larger productions, but they, the equipment was changing, you know, that rather than the big Mitchell BNC cameras or the even larger Technicolor cameras that they had for years that were elephantine pieces of equipment and sound equipment was huge. Now the little Nagra recorder was smaller and the Panaflex yeah. was smaller, you know, and things, you know, like the Eclair uh, cameras that the French used and that Cassavetti used equipment change you needed less light it didn't have to have people bathe in 400 foot candles of light to get an f4 you know to get your lens to the right setting the aperture you know of f4 yeah. to get things in focus you need to have 400 foot candles of light that's a tremendous amount of light that's like arc right. lights, the big 10ks your giant lights. so that all changed and people started to you know have like location filming vans filled with equipment rather than the larger studio trucks and it changed that way and people began to be influenced artistically as well as mechanically by all that, you know, mm. you needed yeah. to have less light, you know, 
Gordon Willis and people who shot for Francis Ford Coppola, you know, you, he'd have just a real candle as a light source, you know, for yeah. a scene lit by a candle would be just a candle. And the yeah. film stock would allow that to happen. And people started to do things in a different manner. Martin Scorsese came upon the scene, started to do things like Mean Street, where it's like people were shot and killed. And it was like, not like a Western, bang, bang. Guys are shooting their revolvers in a saloon, what have you. It wasn't anything like a real gunfight. Martin would have a gunfighter, you know, people shot, executed, mob style with guns. It was like, you went, holy shit, that's probably what it looks like. Yeah. You know, when somebody actually gets shot several times yeah. by a gun. Mo Green gets it in the eye. He went, my God. Right. That's probably what it's like, and it probably is. And so... Thanks. And um, hey, if you see David Mamet, tell him to come on the Limehouse podcast. <laughs> I will tell him. He'll have a good time. You're wonderful to talk to. Thank you. Cheers, Ed. Look after yourself. Cheers. Thanks, mate. Bye. Bye.